please remain standing for our scripture lesson today, continuing in 2 Corinthians and continuing also to draw this contrast between what was fading in the Old Testament and the glory of the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Paul continues here. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. We're in an exciting text. I'm going to ask you to put, as our old teachers used to say, our thinking caps on. John, did you ever say that to any students? Put your thinking caps on. You're all endowed with good minds. I'm going to help you through these verses in the balance of chapter 3, which is granted a little bit challenging, but extremely invigorating and wonderfully helpful to our hearts. But before we do any of that, let's pray. Father, grant us grace to understand Jesus in this gospel text, to love you through him, and to celebrate Christ in the covenant. He's the glory of the covenant. We saw an expression of it here with the administration of the sacrament of the covenant of baptism. We thank you for your sweet spirit. Baptize us afresh with your spirit as we love you in Jesus, and feast on Christ, the bread of life, in whose name we pray. Amen. So the triune God of glory has affected three covenants in the history of reality. The first covenant God made was within the context of the Holy Trinity themselves, as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before the creation in time immemorial, in a way we cannot fully grasp, agreed upon how the elect church would be saved, that the second person of the Holy Trinity would become man, and that human beings made in his image would be redeemed. And of course, at this time, there hadn't even yet been a creation. Once the creation began, the second covenant was put into play. This is what we call the covenant of works or creation. The covenant of creation or works was made with our first federal head of the human race, Adam, in the garden before his fall. He was instructed to enjoy all the things in the garden. He was prohibited from eating of one tree in the garden. As you know, Adam broke the covenant, and so the covenant of works or the covenant of creation has been broken All human beings who are not yet regenerate in Jesus Christ are living in the covenant of works. They're stuck in that rut of always trying to earn merit, perform, gain God's credit, favor by works. They're stuck there. It's a cursed place. The last covenant God made is what we call the covenant of grace, 
God made the covenant of grace in the Garden of Eden after the fall of man into sin. God slew an animal, took the skins from the animal, covered Adam and Eve, who were shamed in their sin and disgrace, with the clothing, the covering of the animal, prefiguring the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would come. Genesis 3.15 is that first great clear gospel presentation where the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. Now, the covenant of grace has been in continual disclosures of wonder and clarity ever since the Garden of Eden. After God did that with Adam, he made it even more clear with Noah, gave the sign of the rainbow. After that, he made it clearer with the father of our faith, Abraham, gave him the sign of circumcision. After that, we have Mount Sinai, where Moses is given the clear law of God, how the people are to worship God in expectation of the Messiah to come. After that, we have King David, who is sitting in prayer, and God promises to make him the head of this great house of grace. The Messiah will come through his line. After that, we have Jeremiah in chapter 31, where he gives us explicit doctrine about the new covenant. And then finally, we have the full disclosure and the effulgent glories of the covenant of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it is appropriate for us to use the language that the Bible itself does of the old covenant and the new covenant. But please understand the old covenant and the new covenant are the one covenant of grace. The old covenant had glory as it pointed ahead to the Messiah who would come. The new covenant has perfected glory as it expresses the effulgent glory and grace of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the God-man who has now been incarnated and who has indeed come. So in light of all this wonderful introductory doctrine, let us, by God's grace, make it our gospel goal today to revel in the Christ of the covenant of grace. So it's Jesus who's always been the heart of everything in creation. God created the world through him, the word of God, the wisdom of God. All things are being brought into subjection to him. He is the head of the church. He is the jewel of the covenant. With this in mind, we'll be studying 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. The title of the sermon is Jesus, the Glory of the Covenant. First of all, the doctrine of this text. Jesus Christ is central with regard to differences between the Old and New Covenants. And that's where we started the outline, if you're willing or desirous of using it. Now again, the Old and New Covenants, being one covenant of grace, are distinguished principally by their relation to Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Now, recently I was reading one of my great old Puritan dead friends, John Owen, and he taught me something I'd never seen before. See what you think about it. He said that under the old covenant, God mostly expressed himself in theophanies and Christophanies through 
the Christ, the Christophany is an appearance of Christ, theophany, appearance of God, through Christ, but in doing so, Christ was only operating in his divine nature, even though he appeared in the form of a man. Owen is arguing he was still operating in his divine nature because it wouldn't be until his incarnation, the inauguration of the new covenant, that he would be fully God and man, now forever the God-man, one mediator, the man, between sinful humans and a holy God. I thought that was really great doctrine. So Jesus Christ is central with regard to differences between the Old and New Covenants. First, the Old had glory in anticipating him. Now, there's no doubt but that the Old Covenant had glory. It was a covenant of grace. Paul keeps telling us this in chapter 3. He says, the Old Covenant had glory. The Old Covenant had glory, but, but, but. Interestingly, the Old Covenant had glory as it looked forward to Christ's arrival on earth to save his elect church, even though that Old Covenant glory was always, from the time of its inauguration until the coming of Christ, fading away, as per verses 7 and 13 of today's 2 Corinthians 3 text. And equally interesting is the reality that the glory of the Old Covenant, while fading, found the unfolding glory of the New Covenant, even within the Old Covenant aegis and age, growing and expanding through the aforementioned means of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Jeremiah, and then finally, in the fullness of Jesus Christ himself the God-man. That's interesting. So all the time the Old Covenant was fading, i.e. the ceremonies, the sacrifices, the temple worship, those things that would go away, while as the Messiah was getting near, the New Covenant was glowing, glowing into more wonder. All the while the Old Covenant, with all those ceremonies, though fading, still possessed glory, and yet it was fading away. And so this is a case in the scripture and the doctrines that come from it that's so often true, is that this is not a situation of either or, as if the old covenant couldn't have glory if the new one did, but it is one of both and. They both had glory, but the new covenant's glory was much greater and is much greater than the old. So in other words, both the old and new covenants exuded or exude glory, but the new covenant's glory in the God-man Jesus is so much greater that it renders the old covenant's glory negligible in comparison. Jesus Christ is central with regard to differences between the old and new covenants. The old had glory in anticipating him, and the new has greater glory in celebrating him. And this is largely the Holy Spirit's and Paul's point in these verses. It's a classic case of an argument from the lesser to the greater. The lesser is the old covenant, it had glory. The greater is the new covenant, it has ultimate and full glory in Jesus Christ. Now this is also a wonderful principle for you Christians to live by, especially as you continue to trod your life down here on a fallen and difficult earth 
where there's sin and lots of other problems. And that is to see, behold, view, and conceive of yourselves as church members who live in the glories of Jesus Christ right now, who is glorified in heaven. See yourself in him, in Christ, in Christo, in him. You are in his church, his kingdom of grace. As you do this, as you begin to think of yourself this way, all of your perspectives on everything in your lives are going to change and be revolutionized, all for the better. Lord's day to Lord's day, even from the smallest amount to growing amounts as you grow up in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Instead of conceiving of yourselves as being under the law and subject to the wrath of God against your sins... You who are living in the glories of the new covenant should believe and know yourselves in Christ as his church to be under God's sovereign, electing, sweet, atoning, and fabulous grace. And instead of thinking of yourselves as those who are having to earn or merit God's favor through your works, your deeds, your laws, your religion, your behavior, your performance, you become so confident in Jesus Christ the effulgent glory of the new covenant, so sure that you're free and you know yourselves to be beloved children of God for whom Christ died and shed his blood. See, the people living still stuck in the covenant of works can't get there except for the grace of God, but that's where we were too. This is all because the glory of Jesus has come in the fullness of his person, his covenant, his kingdom who has been made one with us, who's become one of us. The God-man has joined our humanity forever. The God-man. It's a wonderful thing. It changed everything, dear. The whole world is different. It's a different universe ever since this happened. His incarnation. And this is the reason that Paul had so eloquently spoken of the ministers of the new covenant. Remember that earlier, if you were here? Ministers of a new covenant in the earlier verses. And the reason is because they, ministers of the new covenant, now live in and preach a living, risen Lord Jesus Christ and a kingdom that is full and glorious in that glorious person of Jesus Christ. This is the new covenant In all its glory, he rules and reigns forever and ever. Now let's study the verses. We finally get there. Verses 7 through 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and understand why degrees of glory in the one covenant of grace are significant. Now, there's, if these degrees of glory were not significant, then I doubt we'd be reading about them over and over from Paul's inspired pen here in this chapter. Analogously, as faithful Christian churchmen, we also grow by degrees. The very last verse in this chapter, verse 18, Lord willing, I'm going to be preaching it next Sunday. I've already prepared that sermon. It's extremely exciting. Is teaching us that we grow by degrees by constantly beholding the glory of Jesus Christ by faith. This is something I'm going to teach you, especially next Sunday, how to do this. This is so exciting and revolutionary. This is how we grow, get sanctified, become more Christ-like, by degrees from glory to glory, 
as the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And it is a wonderful thing. And it's done by beholding the glory of Jesus Christ by faith. And principally in three very practical means of grace. Preaching, which you're hearing now, otherwise you'd never know this. Sacrament, whereby you are identified with Christ or feast on Jesus. And prayer, where you enter into this glory and have your bodies changed, your hearts changed, unveiled faces. You behold God without shame in Jesus Christ because you know all your sins have been washed away. You're no longer shamed. You have no veil over your faces, as we're going to look at, Lord willing, next week. Let us now strongly appreciate why degrees of glory in the one covenant of grace are significant. First, because Christ's fulfilling of the law is greater than Moses' giving of it, verses 7 and 8. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Now, again, notice that both the Old Covenant's giving of the law here at Sinai and the New Covenant's fulfillment and fullness of it in Jesus Christ with the Spirit's liberating applications of his atonement are glorious. They both are glorious. They're both glorious. But the glory of the Old Covenant was always, from verse 7c, being brought to an end. The closer Jesus got to his incarnation, the less glory in the Old Covenant. While the glory of the New Covenant in Christ is supremely greater and permanent. This last week, Leslie and I got to meet with uh, the man who led me to Jesus in, uh, when I was 19-year-old in college at Northern Iowa. I hadn't seen him in 43 years. And... I was recalling an event back when we were students where we took a trip to Missouri one night, one day. And in the nighttime, we went out, and the sky was so beautiful. The Milky Way, the, the stars, the moon. Well, here's the illustration. The full moon on a clear night is certainly very splendid, is it not, and glorious? But compared to the sun on a cloudless day, the moon would have no glory at all. That's really the picture here between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The difference for the world and the church before Jesus Christ came in his incarnation and the difference for the church and the world after Jesus came in his incarnation. It's a new world. On top of all this, even as these verses intimate, the fullness of the Spirit in Jesus Christ, get this, dears, overwhelms the fearfulness of the law, especially as it existed before Christ's incarnation. There's a sense in which the Old Covenant sort of brought that sort of fearfulness. The New Covenant hadn't come here yet. And now the the fullness of the Spirit in Jesus drives that out. And notice here the ministries of death and the ministry of the Spirit, and they're juxtaposed, and the highlight and enhancement is placed on the ministry of the Spirit, the New Covenant expression, in this age in which we live now as Jesus Christ's elect 
and yet still sinful church. Why degrees of glory in the one covenant of grace are significant? Because Christ's fulfilling of the law is greater than Moses' giving of it. And we saw that in the Hebrews text that opened our service today too, didn't we? Christ is greater than Moses. And because Christ's atonement of his church obliterated the ceremonial shadows, verse 9. The word there is atonement. That is a, a perfect satisfaction payment for sins. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So now here's where you, I want you to try to stay with me. This would be interesting because Paul is setting up, if you will, the old covenant as a ministry of condemnation and the new covenant as a ministry of righteousness. And also these, these words correspond to verses 7 and 8 where he talks about a ministry of death and ministry of the Spirit. But there's, he is doing this not to establish two separate covenants of grace, Rather, what he's doing is not making an absolute dogmatic doctrinal statement between these two expressions of the one covenant of grace as much as he is again comparing them to this dynamic of anticipation and fulfillment surrounding Christ's incarnation. So that's the real point of this. It's not like the old covenant was bad, the new covenant's good. It's just that in Christ Jesus, the fullness is so much greater. He would be incarnated, which would lead to his salvation of his elect church. Many of you are expressions of that. Now, this blessed atonement, this this sacrifice that's made for sinners of blood was foreshadowed in the Old Covenant ceremonial laws, its sacrifices, its temple appointments, and all of that. But now it is all finished in Jesus Christ, his person, his cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and his glorious reigning and session in heaven. This is why the two covenants, old and new, that spoke and speak of the one covenant of grace in Jesus' blood could be and are referred to this way by the apostle and others as, for instance, the author of the book of Hebrews, who often brings this up. But again, the main thing Paul is emphasizing in this verse 9, and he's been doing it since verse 7 and continues through verse 11, is this dual reality that both covenants, old and new, had or have glory but the new covenant far exceeds the old in this divine luster. And the reason for this is the coming of the second person of the Holy Trinity in his, Christ's, incarnation as the God-man who would give his life for sinners, ransoming us from sin and death. Why degrees of glory in the one covenant of grace are significant? Christ fulfilling, greater than Moses giving, Christ's atonement, obliterated the shadows. And finally, Christ, because Christ's ascension, A-S-C-E-N-S-I-O-N, when he, he was lifted into heaven after his resurrection, transfers all the splendor to the heavenly temple church, verses 10 and 11. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So now we have God's permanent temple church in heaven. 
the temple on earth was completely out of date. And that's why in 70 AD God allowed the Romans to destroy it, and that's why the book of Revelation was written. Now that temple is in heaven. Jesus Christ ascended there, presented his blood to his Father on behalf of all the elect churchmen of every age that would ever live on this earth. He atoned for them. That temple is in heaven, made without hands. You can read about it in the book of Hebrews. And yet, even as we speak of the temple being heavenly, we should be careful to note also that it's on earth too. Because the church is one church, either triumphant in heaven or militant on earth, and we are lifted into the heavenlies, even today as we worship, as per Ephesians 2, 6 and other places. So we have a heavenly temple that has an earthly expression in the church on earth, and yet as we worship and as we walk with God, we're lifted into heaven. All of this helps explain and inform our reformed view of the kingdom of God, that's also the kingdom of heaven, and our understanding of the sacrament, especially the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, where we are lifted into heaven and feast with Jesus and on him, the Lamb of God. And Lord willing, we'll be doing that next Sunday in that sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Now we can comprehend why Paul and the other New Testament authors envisage the old temple in Jerusalem as being completely defunct and of no use whatsoever. Since Christ had now already entered upon his ascension into heaven, the temple above, where again he presents his blood to his Father, and has provided a full and perfect atonement, satisfaction, sacrifice for all the sins of every single elect soul that would ever be atoned for by the miraculous grace of God and brought into his holy church. The concept of the two temples, the old one that used to be on earth and the new one that always exists in heaven, will help you understand verses 10 and 11. If you're able to be here next week, we will have a very exciting conclusion to this chapter. But for right now, let's do a little more application and consider together why it really is critical for the true church to understand the implications of Christ's incarnation ascension. Now, dearest, that's really true because everything depends on this. If we do not understand this personally and experience it and incorporate it by faith into our hearts and own it as Christian churchmen whose sins really are forgiven by the blood atonement of Christ and we can take his absolution as true for us because we are in Christ as faithful uh, people in his church, his covenant, if we can do that, we will be safe and secure. But if not, here's what happens. Inevitably, this is the default thing that happens. We slip into the old covenant, which no longer has any life or vitality. The old covenant doesn't even exist anymore. Its glory faded away, and now in the new covenant, it's full in Jesus Christ. We slip back into law and works and deeds and death, and condemnation, and the world's ways, and the fear of the world, and peer pressure, and the ways of the world. We just fall into that. We become no better than any other unregenerate soul. 
That's how important this is that you grasp the wonders of Christ's incarnation ascension. Therefore, we ought to be able and desirous of clearly and passionately comprehending why it is critical for the true church to understand the implications of Christ's incarnation ascension. First, because we now abide in the risen Lord Jesus. That's where we are. The regenerate church is in him, in the person of the risen, ascended, crowned Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we live. We consistently live this way. We grow from glory to glory, grace to grace, by degrees, being more conformed into the image of Jesus by beholding his glory by faith. John 15:5 finds our Messiah teaching us this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How do we abide in Christ? Let's get practical. We've had some pretty high-flown, very exciting doctrine out of this text. How do we abide in Christ, in the glories of the new covenant, the covenant of grace, fully expressed? Exampled right here earlier today by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. What does this faith look like and what does it do? What does a person who is baptized now do? What does a person who is regenerate, atoned for, now do? We feast on Jesus Christ every Sunday in the sermons, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10:17. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, lest you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And in prayer, that's what faith does. Faith hears Jesus preached by ministers of the new covenant, partakes of the sacraments of the new covenant, and prays to the God of glory in the new covenant. Why it is critical for the true church to understand these implications, because we now abide in the risen Lord Jesus, who has already bestowed his richest graces on us and himself. Dears, you've had a lot today, but what can say it better in this regard than 2 Corinthians 3.11, the last verse of our scripture lesson for the day, to quote it again. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. All your glory for you who are in Christ Jesus, who are not only created in the image of God, but recreated in the image of Jesus Christ himself, All your glory is in Christ, dear church. Believe in him, love him, enjoy him, even as our catechism tells us to do. Glorify him and enjoy him forever. Spend time in his presence. Behold the glory of Jesus Christ with unveiled face as forgiven Christian churchmen and be transformed more and more from glory to glory, Lord's day to Lord's day and throughout the week. Beloved, Jesus, the glory of the covenant, shed his blood for sinners. Let us bless God for Jesus, the glory of the covenant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, the glory of the covenant. 
You've given us everything you possibly could in Jesus, and we thank you. We thank you that even though sometimes Paul writes these uh, very uh, detailed doctrinal statements, and yet they're so important and we need to understand them. We thank you for the one covenant of grace. We thank you that the old covenant was there, had its place, had glory. It's faded away. It doesn't exist anymore. The new covenant is permanent. The church is established. The Lord Jesus cannot be thwarted. He is the living king over all the church and the world. We thank you for Jesus, the glory of the covenant. We pray in his name. Amen.